Good morning. It is Tuesday, June 23rd, and this is Community Pulse, your local report on the coronavirus pandemic in mid-Missouri. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. on KOPN, and all episodes can be found online at kopn.org and on our Facebook page. Today on Community Pulse, our host, Dr. Elizabeth Alleman, joins us to give an update on the research surrounding therapeutics, treatments, and clinical trials related to coronavirus. Dr. Alleman is a local family physician and host of Your Health Matters here on KOPN. Good morning, Dr. Alleman. Good morning, Mallory, um, and thank you to our listeners uh, who are tuning in. I want to um, uh, plug tomorrow's uh, Community Pulse. Uh, Dr. Steepleman from the um, Columbia Public Schools will be on with Jenny Chadwick, and they're going to be discussing Columbia Public Schools' recent announcement of what their policies are for the fall, which is generating a lot of discussion. And I'm really glad that we have Jenny, who has, uh, you know, a, a child in the public school, so is paying close attention to this. I'm sort of out of that loop, so I'm really happy we're going to be having that. And then tomorrow on Your Health Matters, I had a really lovely interview with uh, Dr. Turner, uh, who's a family physician and addiction medicine specialist, talking about how the COVID pandemic, uh, racial unrest, and uh, substance use disorder treatment are um, intersecting, and I, I really enjoyed that interaction. But so. Great. And that's yeah. the same Dr. Turner that was on last week on Community right, Pulse. Was, yes. Right. Thank you for reminding me that. Yes, our Community Pulse got a uh, preview of that. And then uh, actually we recorded that show right after she and I got off of Community Pulse. Awesome. So. Yeah. Yeah. So back to coronavirus. Uh, worldwide, 9 million people um, are uh, have been diagnosed with the illness um, with uh 475,000 people dead and uh, 4 million, almost 5 million people recovering. In the United States, we're up to 2.4 million people with 123,000 deaths and right at a million people recovering. In Missouri, um, we are seeing a, a decline in the rate of increase in cases in the St. Louis and Kansas City area but a marked uh, increase in the cases in the southwest part of the state in the Joplin area. Um, apparently, there are two fairly large chicken processing plants in that area, um, but the health department is saying that that is not the only place where cases are happening, so uh, it's hard to know exactly why that's happening, but it seems to be another place where uh, cases are increasing in a community that also houses meat packing, meat processing facilities. Uh, across the state, we have 19,000 uh, cases, um, and uh, with a, an increase of 229 cases in the last 24 hours, uh, with 984 deaths, five new ones um, in Boone County. Uh, we are up to 277 cases. And the last I saw last night, we had 70 active cases. Those are people who the health department is supporting while they are in uh, isolation. Um, so, yeah. And uh, the uh, we have now, um, on Monday, yesterday, we had our largest uh, daily one-day increase, uh, which is kind of an unusual thing. Mondays tend to be slow days. Um, uh, because we're still catching up from the weekend. Um, and so to, 
today we also in the last 24 hours we had uh actually that was a sunday report now we have a report from monday which is a little bit lower than the sunday it's still higher than any day before yesterday so we're um seeing an increase in cases primarily driven by spread in rural areas non-urban areas so that's where we are with um coronavirus uh, in Missouri, as far as I understand, there are no hospitals in Missouri who are facing um, an overwhelm of cases, of, of hospitalized cases, but I am concerned about what's going to happen in the southeast, the southwest part of the state as um, these, you know, as, as time goes on and these increases in cases, it takes another week or so for people to get sick enough to be hospitalized, so we'll be watching that. So, um, Moving on to a little bit more positive um, light is that in Missouri we have we have flattened the curve enough so that we did not overwhelm our medical system. I'm so relieved about that. Um, and now one of the other things that's happened if we can slow the spread is that it allows an opportunity for uh, us to figure out treatments. And I think the whole world was sort of waiting for this to become a big enough problem in the United States that we would... Uh, marshal our incredible ability to do scientific research. It's not perfect. I have concerns about the system too, but we generate a lot of money, and so we have a lot of people who are used to performing these research um, studies. So um, let's see, just to sort of recap it, we have the um, total mass, I'm trying to not use expletives on the air, that is the evaluation of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine where there was clarity that um, it increased the risk and then that study had to be retracted because of outright fraud in the management of the database, which is, it's all, it's this incredible perfect storm for creating uh, conspiracy theories that we all conspired to make hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine look bad. And I don't know if the layers of conspiracy um, that one would have to speculate on are, is pretty mind-boggling. But it's hard, yeah. It was such a controversial area in the first place for there to have been this kind of mismanagement of the data is really infuriating. Um, but for now, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have had their FDA emergency use um, uh, authorization uh, compassionate use authorization. I'm trying. I'm not getting the, num- the name nomenclature right. But the FDA had made an exception and had temporarily, conditionally approved its use in COVID-19, and they have withdrawn that. That does not mean that it is illegal to use it. It's just now clearly an off-label use. We do a lot of off-label uses, but it. Yeah. Anyway, so that's that's gonna that we have hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine seem to be pushed to the side. Remdesivir, which is an antiviral. Um, initially designed to be used in HIV, um, has been shown to be useful by reducing the need, reducing uh, mortality. And um, they have now done another study showing that a lower dose works as well, a shorter course, five days works as well as 10 days. So that is uh, positive. And one of the concerns about that drug is it's new, so it's possible that there are risks that we haven't uh, discovered yet, and the other is that it may be very costly right now. The last I heard, the pharmaceutical company was um, offering this medicine for free for now, um, but the, I think we'll just have to watch the price of that. There's another medicine that has been used for uh, autoimmune disorders like rheumatoid arthritis and uh, mast cell arteritis, um, 
some other unusual uh, severe uh, autoimmune disorders. And I um, have been practicing pronouncing it now. I can't remember. It's tocilizumab. It is a humanized monoclonal antibody. I'm not sure what humanized means, but I think that it's a mono... So an antibody is, of course, an immune response, a specific immune response generated by the body of an animal. Monoclonal means that they um, did a complex <clears throat> labeling of a cell line, and they are now using a cell line probably cultured in a tissue culture that creates um, one antibody. So the <clears throat> cells are not creating a large variety of antibodies, but one. So it's monoclonal. It's one colony of antibodies. So all the antibodies produced are, are uh, molecularly identical. And then humanized, I'm guessing they modified... Um, the part that sticks out for the white cells to recognize and so that it is not like maybe it was generated in mice or something and now they've made it human. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I'm sure that it, it was complex. <clears throat> and it targets <clears throat> the receptor for interleukin-6, which is a um, cytokine. So we've talked about this marked and, uh, inflammatory response that COVID-19 seriously infected COVID-19 patients exhibit, um, which was called a cytokine storm. So that means that all of these inflammatory molecules just start to get into a positive feedback loop, and they sort of over-respond to the virus in a way that causes heart disease and kidney disease and increased clotting and, um, and risk of death. And so this um, monoclonal antibody blocks the receptor for one of these cytokines. So it's a very specific intervention. And um, uh, it, they're using a single dose and noticing that it, so in one study, they noticed that it had a significant impact. There are many other studies in the works, so we should be getting more information about that. I was looking up prices. A dose of this ranges from $100 to uh, $2,000, depending on the, the dose that's required, so um, expense for this medicine will be a, an issue and we'll have to be following that as well. Um, but that's, gonna, that's acting differently than the remdesivir, so it's possible those two could be combined in a way that would be helpful. So the remdesivir is actually working on the virus, trying to make it harder for the virus to replicate, and this tocilizumab is working on the body's inflammatory response. So the other exciting um, de development was the, the a study of uh, dexamethasone, which is a an old, um, I don't want to call it old. It is a drug that we've been using for a very long time, for decades, and it has an established safety profile, and it is available generically, and it is um, pretty inexpensive. And um, it also, as a steroid, it's going to reduce inflammation. So some people have probably taken dexamethasone if they've been given a Medrol dose pack for poison ivy. Um, that this is, and this is in similar dosing regimen, so it should be relatively low risk. And it has shown um, significant uh, improvement in one not yet peer-reviewed study. So there's a lot of discussion since we have recently had a study retracted that had not yet been peer-reviewed. We are being tentative, but there are um, discussions among physician leaders on discussion boards about whether this is enough to start using it or whether we should wait. Um, and different uh, medical centers are making different choices. Um, so 
uh, it is interesting and exciting to me that perhaps we'll be able to reduce the death rate of this uh, virus uh, by having effective treatments. Um, so between you know the non-pharmacologic interventions that we talked about yesterday with masks and uh, social distancing and being outside, that then having uh, effective treatments on the other end are things that will can change our experience of this uh, pandemic w- even before we develop an effective vaccine, which can I say I'm so hopeful and I don't want to, I don't, I, w- there's a lot of coronaviruses we have been working on trying to develop a vaccine for and we have not yet. So I think until we get it, we can't presume that it's inevitable. Um, so, um, there are also, oh, and then there's also studies ongoing about using convalescent plasma, convalescent serum. So this is if a person has had COVID-19 and they have recovered, they are likely to have antibodies in their blood and those can be um, uh, filtered out and given to another person who's experiencing the disease with the idea that it's what we call passive immunity and um, uh Apparently, you can use um, antibodies from other animals. In the past, people might remember being, you know, hearing um, uh, relatives, elderly, older relatives, talking about ever been given horse serum in the past. So this was that that they would, you know, these larger animals can can generate large amounts of these antibodies. And so um, we are seeing that those are effective. They are not as remarkably effective as we had hoped. So people are still trying to figure out how the timing of those and whether there are different antibodies that are more effective than others. So we're still developing that. So that seems to be helpful, but it is not the um, Lazarus effect that people had hoped. And there are um, costs and risks associated with them. It is similar to receiving a blood transfusion. So we have to have donors. The donors have to be screened. There can be uh, infection issues and uh, hypersensitivity or, you know, a a transfusion reaction kind of uh, almost like you would rejection, like if you were having a transplant. So these are um, manageable. We we understand them. We can um, anticipate a good part of them, and if we're really careful, we can prevent most of them. But some of them are a little unexpected. So, those are that is almost certainly going to be a temporary uh, solution because almost always when what we're using is convalescent serum, everybody is looking for something better because there are problems with that. So we're developing new um, therapies, and um, one of the uh, sites that I sent you. Um, and I don't think I don't have it opened up, but that I hope that you'll post is it does a really great job of summarizing the clinical trials, the ones that are in process, the ones that have been published, and also just a little summary of how these different medicines work. Um, and I was really surprised at the several hundred drugs that are continuing to be in the pipeline to be studied. Yeah, we'll be sure to link a post to to that summary, um, or those summaries, it's a really helpful for someone like me who doesn't have a super scientific brain. It's really nice to have it all organized. So thank you for finding that. Well, I was so happy to stumble on it this morning. I was like, Oh, my goodness, that just reduced my workload by, you know, (laughs) if I had found that one first, I would have spent um, a few less hours working on this. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And that for someone who is used to reading, um, 
uh, scientific literature, not necessarily medical literature, it is an understandable resource. So um, I would recommend anybody who's interested in that seek that one out. So, um, yeah. Great. And so then the other thing I wanted to talk about is that um, this sort of came um, into my attention after I had already committed to talking about this, so I want to take a little deeper dive on Thursday about the summary of the research about um, the really low incidence of this illness in children and how that may mean that children are not the vectors that we feared that they might be and what that means for the opening of schools. And I know that Jenny and Dr. Stiepelman will be talking about that tomorrow from a policy perspective. And, um, you know, ideally I would be more on top of it like Jenny is and I would have, you know, been ready to discuss that today. And so we could talk about the science and then the policy, but as is typical, she's ahead of me. She's going to talk about the policy tomorrow, and then I will talk about the science the day after. But just so people know, there is some science that the school district is consulting. That is preliminary. It's not perfect, but we are continuing to have to move forward with the best we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm looking forward to both of those conversations. Um, should we should we talk about our listener question, Dr. Oh, Alvin? yes. Thanks for reminding me we mm-hmm. have the listener question. So the question is, what about swimming at the ARC? The Activity and Recreation Center here in Columbia, Missouri, has an indoor swimming pool. And so swimming, um, we don't believe that the water is a danger at all. So these viruses tend to um, be undermined pretty quickly by even fresh water, but um, with chlorine in it, um, we don't think that there's any concern about viral transmission uh, in the water. Um, And we uh, don't think that, um, that swimming by itself is any problem. The issue has to do with it means breathing fairly heavily in proximity to other people who are also breathing heavily. And it's really difficult when you're swimming laps to control how close you get to people. Uh, At least I have a hard time with that. I find myself suddenly really close to another swimmer. Maybe I get too meditative when I swim. and the other issue with that, so that would be the one issue is that if you, it would be best if you were, um, if the pool was not crowded, and I don't know what the ARC's policies on that are. The other issue has to do with the locker room. Um, so that, and, and the truth is that you cannot effectively wear a mask when you're swimming. Masks lose their effectiveness once they get wet. So um, there's no point even trying that, and I'm imagining that it would be difficult to breathe through a wet mask as well. Um, and that you probably can't wear a mask while you're taking a shower. That would be difficult as well. Um, and it, so locker rooms tend to be humid. The virus really loves um, high humidity, and they tend to be places where um, they tend to be fairly small, and uh, large numbers of people tend to come into them and then go out. Um, we don't think that COVID-19 um, lingers in the air like we initially, I was concerned it would, but it doesn't seem to do that like measles and tuberculosis, that we think that the transmission has to be direct person to person. So if people wanted to swim for exercise, it would be preferable if they could do that outdoors and they could arrive in their swimsuit and then get out of the pool and um, either change outdoors or um, just wear their swimsuit home. Uh, So swimming inside would be a higher risk than swimming outside. Uh, Being physically active is a good idea to um, maintain your 
uh, immune system and your cardiovascular health and mental health and all the things. So it's probably a moderate risk activity to swim inside, especially if you are going to, you know, I imagine the ARC does not want you drip, drip, dripping out across their um, lobby because you didn't want to spend time in the in the locker room changing your clothes. So um, those are the thoughts I have about swimming inside. Thank you. Yeah, and I was just trying to look up the the ARC's rules, um, and you can find them just with okay. a quick Google search online. I'm not going to re- read them all out, especially in case they have uh, have something that's more up-to-date than what I found. But just so right. folks know that that um, it does look like they're doing symptom screening and whatnot before you can enter the building. Okay. And I think people have been asking me similar things about what about going to a gym and working out. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, it's similar issues. I think that probably people will be really focused on cleaning the surfaces, which I think is a great idea, especially since people tend to use them one after another. They tend to stay sort of damp in between with people sweating. Um, But I think that we can lose sight of the fact that this is primarily a respiratory illness that is transmitted through breath and that um, most of what happens on the surfaces have to do with the amount of breath that lands on the surface and then you touching it and then rubbing your face. Um, So again, it's really hard to go to the gym and lift weights outside. There's that. Um, But uh, I have been uh, decided, I used to go and walk on the track and I've decided I'm going to do that outside and I've invested in a little bit better rain gear and, um, you know, committed myself to getting up earlier in the morning so that I can do that outside. Yeah. And we might as well do it now before winter comes. I know it feels like it's a long way away with how hot it is, but I know. take Enjoy advantage. Now, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to miss that in November. Yeah. Um, and then this is also a great time while people are cleaning out their closets for you to up your outdoor, your winter outdoor gear um, uh, capacity so that we can do all the things outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I currently have a long-term house guest who lives in uh, Alaska, and he, they, they do things outside in Alaska. So I think we need to up our outdoor winter gear game in yeah. Missouri so that we can do the things outside. Yeah, we can do it. I know we, we can. can. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Alman. Is there anything else for today? Uh, no, I don't think so. Just t- tune in tomorrow to hear the discussion about uh, Columbia Public School policies, which I imagine will influence the schools in the surrounding areas. And then tomorrow, tomorrow night, uh, Your Health Matters, Dr. Turner, will be on for, if you enjoyed her conversation with us last, last week, yeah. um, you will enjoy the longer conversation. Great. Thanks so much for All joining right. us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That's it for today's edition of Community Pulse. You can catch Community Pulse Monday through Thursday at 9 a.m. and later in the day at KOPN.org and on our Facebook page. As always, we want to know what questions, comments, and insights you have related to coronavirus. We have limited capacity for taking your message on the air, but you can leave us a message by calling 573-874-1139 and we'll get back to you and or address your question on air. You can also email your questions to gm at kopn.org. Up next is an abridged version of Background Briefing. Thanks so much for listening to KOPN 89.5, your volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station. I hope you enjoy this sunny day.